Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is The War of Independence, Part 9, An Empire in Crisis. In this episode, we will switch focus to look at the British authorities and their perspective on the war. This means we'll be spending time in the corridors of power in Dublin and London. But in 1919, these were not the places of dull office politics. Far from it. As we'll see, at Christmas 1919, the IRA were planning to strike at the heart of British power in Ireland. Now before we begin, there are two important announcements. Next week, the main show makes way for the third exclusive patrons-only Q&A with Dr Brian Hanley from the History Department of Trinity College Dublin. This takes place on Sunday, May 2nd at 4pm Dublin time. The focus of this Q&A is going to be the IRA itself, so we'll be looking at how the organisation worked, why people joined, who exactly were the people who joined the IRA, along with any questions that you have. Now this is limited to show patrons only, so if you want to participate, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. You'll also get access to recordings of the last two Q&As as well, that's patreon.com dot com forward slash irish podcast also don't forget to check out the shop at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop you'll find lots of cool posters from the war of independence series there we've also just launched a new pin that's of common naman the republican women's organization from the war of independence now these pins are really cool it's a metal badge with the words common naman resting on a rifle You can find this and lots more items associated with the War of Independence at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Last but not least, additional research was by the archivist and historian Sam McGrath. Sound was by Jason Looney. Additional narrations are by Aidan Crow and Therese Murray. And the artwork for the series is by Keith Hines. On Friday, December 19th, 1919, Ashtown train station was a hive of activity. A fleet of cars, a detective on a motorbike and a small detachment of soldiers awaited the arrival of the Viceroy of Ireland, Lord John French. 
The arrival of the most powerful British representative in Ireland was something of a regular occurrence at this quiet country station outside Dublin, given it was located close to the Phoenix Park, where the Viceroy's official residence, the Viceregal Lodge, today known as Oris Anukderon, was situated. On this occasion, Lord French was returning to Dublin after a short personal trip to Roscommon, where he had stayed with the Stafford family in Rockingham Castle. Awaiting him in Dublin was yet another political storm in a tenure that had been dogged by controversies. Four days earlier, Ireland's best-known and oldest daily newspaper, the Freeman's Journal, had published an article critiquing his latest policy of recruiting additional police officers from the ranks of the civil service. In response, the Dublin Metropolitan Police had closed the paper for six weeks after raiding its offices and removing vital components of the printing presses. This act of censorship had provoked criticism far and wide. The article was not that extreme and the newspaper itself was generally a voice of moderation in Ireland. Indeed, this proved a vain attempt to control the narrative of how the war in Ireland was being reported. What had been one critical column in a daily newspaper in Dublin now attracted attention from publications across the United Kingdom who took issue with what they saw as press censorship. Then adding to the controversy, the seven Home Rule MPs, the only Irish nationalists remaining in the House of Commons, staged a walkout in protest. As Lord French returned to Dublin, there was little sign of this crisis abating. The following day, a legal team from the Freeman's Journal were expected before the courts to question the legality of the move. The criticism of the act and indeed Lord French himself was set to continue. And for French, he was under attack from all sides. There were those who held him personally responsible, although perhaps even more concerning for him were the murmurings that he was not really in control of the administration in Ireland, but instead a puppet of civil servants. As he turned these issues over in his mind, his train pulled into Ashtown Station, where French was greeted by the small party of detectives and soldiers. However, little did he know that as he alighted the train in Ashtown, he faced an imminent and far graver threat than the political storm over the closure of the Freeman's Journal. A few hundred metres down the road, a group of men had gathered in the halfway house, a local pub. They had ordered soft drinks and tried to blend in with a smaller number of locals who were at the bar. They had in fact, however, an ulterior motive. They had come to kill Lord French. The group included some of the IRA's most experienced volunteers. Mick Macdonald, Vinnie Byrne and Paddy Daly from the Dublin Brigade were also joined by the men known as the Big Four. We've met Sean Hogan, Seamus Robinson, Dan Breen and Sean Tracy in previous episodes at the ambushes of Salahed Beg and Knock Long, but by December 1919 they had now relocated to Dublin and were only a few hundred metres from Lord French. Just after one o'clock, while Lord French and his entourage of armed detectives and soldiers transferred from the train to the waiting fleet of cars, the IRA volunteers left the pub and took up positions behind a ditch on a narrow stretch of road. They had also found an old manure cart, which they had decided to use as a barricade. Lord French's convoy left the train station at around 1.15 and had scarcely travelled 300 metres towards the Viceregal Lodge when the drivers noticed several men in a gate pushing the manure cart onto the road. This aroused suspicion as the men were acting in a confused manner, turning the cart around before then proceeding to push it onto the road again. Mick Macdonald from the Dublin Brigade's 2nd Battalion who led this operation recalled what was happening. 
they'd been taken slightly off guard. They hadn't expected French to arrive quite so quickly. French's party took less time than we had expected to get into the cars and come from the station. I gave the signal for the car to be brought out, and I put Paddy Daly and four others inside the hedge with hand grenades. After telling them to concentrate on the second car, and some other details, I turned to the cart again and found that they were bringing it through the gate with the staffs first, instead of the way I had told them. I started swearing and shouted, Why didn't you push it out the way I told you? That delayed them, trying to turn it outside the gate. At this point, the drivers in the convoy appear to have realised the dangers facing them. A detective on a motorbike reached the manure cart on the road first and he easily skirted around the obstacle. He was followed by the first of the fleet of cars. However, the IRA volunteers were undeterred. From their surveillance, they knew that the Viceroy travelled in the second car in convoys and they now had this vehicle trapped behind the cart. Several men, including three standing in plain view on the roadside and more behind the ditch, now opened fire. Grenades were also thrown with one bouncing off the car and exploding on the road. The vehicle was severely damaged and riddled with bullets. However, within seconds, the dynamic of the situation dramatically changed. While French's car had been attacked, the armed escort travelling in the vehicles behind arrived on the scene. They opened fire immediately and two IRA volunteers were hit. The Sligo native Martin Savage was killed instantly after sustaining a bullet wound to the head. Dan Breen, who had sustained serious wounds at the Knocklong ambush several months earlier, was shot in the leg again. While this was happening, the driver of the fifth car had turned her vehicle around and drove back to Ashtown Station. There, she informed the party of soldiers who had welcomed Lord French on his arrival, and they now began to move down the road towards the ambush site. The IRA volunteers started to retreat. As they made their escape, they did what they could for their dead comrade Martin Savage. They couldn't hope to carry him back all the way to Dublin, but instead they picked him off the roadside and left his body in the yard of the pub where they had been standing together a few minutes earlier. They then fled the scene, some retreating through fields on foot while the rest headed in the direction of Dublin on bicycles. Behind them they left a scene of total carnage. The second car they had focused their attack on was severely damaged, while two soldiers and a policeman were injured as well. The volunteers successfully reached Dublin and melted into the city, but had to wait hours before the news finally filtered out as to the condition of Lord French himself. Mick Macdonald remembered when they heard the full details about the second car. To our amazement, we discovered that there was nothing in it but luggage. French had in fact been travelling in the first car that had made it through the ambush before the cart had blocked the road. Had that cart been pushed out seconds earlier, he would almost certainly have been killed. When news spread across Dublin, the reactions to the attempt on French's life varied. To kill, or to attempt to kill, the most senior British official on the island was a step up from ambushes which had resulted in the killing of policemen. It divided the public. Some had sympathy for the IRA, which was apparent at the inquest into the death of Martin Savage, the volunteer who had been killed. After hearing the evidence, the coroner suggested to the jury that they issue the following verdict. 
He died from the effects of a bullet wound inflicted by a soldier under circumstances which constituted an act of justifiable homicide, that he inflicted the wound in self-defence and in the course of preventing a deliberately planned crime, namely the murder of Lord French. However, the jury, drawn from local tradesmen in Ashtown, formulated their own words and issued the following verdict. The deceased, Martin Savage, met his death as a result of a bullet fired by the military escort at Ashtown Cross. The jury begged to tender their sympathy to the relatives of the deceased. They had omitted the words justifiable homicide, self-defence or any mention of Lord French. While this indicated sympathy with Martin Savage, Sermons and communiques from the Catholic Church in the aftermath indicated they were sensing growing support for the IRA, particularly amongst younger men. The Catholic Primate of Ireland, Cardinal Michael Logue, a native of Donegal, called for young men to stay away from the IRA. He who joins a secret society may be said, in the words of St Paul, to deliver himself to Satan, placing himself under the ban of the Church depriving himself of those supernatural aids which would fortify him against evil. The Bishop of Dublin, William Walsh, also echoed sentiments that appeared to indicate support for the IRA in the aftermath of the Ashtown ambush. There are, it is to be feared, not a few short-sighted men amongst us, influenced largely, if not mainly, by political zeal who look upon such crimes as affording an opportunity for denunciation. Some of the more moderate supporters of independence, however, were outraged at the news. The Irish Independent, which was broadly sympathetic of independence, but not the IRA, wrote a deeply critical editorial, which included the following lines. Murders and attempts at murder are appalling and revolting deeds. They are immoral and unchristian and abhorrent to the community at large. Deliberate murder of any person is wrong, criminal and absolutely reprehensible. Infuriated by this, several dozen IRA volunteers, led by Pather Clancy, arrived at the newspaper offices in the city centre that evening and proceeded to smash up the printing presses with sledgehammers and crowbars. However, this attempt to control the narrative of the war, just like the British attempt to censor the Freeman's Journal days earlier, had a minimal impact. After the IRA raid, other Dublin newspapers rallied to support the Independent and ensured it went to print using their printing presses. Whether it influenced what the Independent published in the coming months is more difficult to say. Despite the press criticism, from the point of view of the IRA, the fact that Lord French had survived the attack was arguably the best result. As an individual, we will see French was a man of limited capabilities and would have been no great loss to the British war effort. More importantly, historians have wondered whether the IRA could have withstood the inevitable wave of unprecedented repression the British government would have claimed was justified. Indeed, the fact that they had come close enough to kill French was in many ways as useful. It demonstrated the organisation was capable of reaching even those in the highest offices in the land. Controversial as it was, there was little evidence it did any long-term damage to the support of the IRA. Now conversely, from Lord French's point of view, whatever sympathy the attack on his life may have evoked, it was undermined and squandered within days by what were the last deaths of the war in 1919. Nine days after the Ashtown ambush, 
at two in the morning on December the 28th, the darkness and silence of the Phoenix Park around Lord French's residence was shattered by gunshots. When it finally ended and silence fell across the park, two people lay dead. A soldier, Lieutenant Frederick Boast, and a civilian, Lawrence Kennedy. While it was initially intimated that this may have been another foiled attempt on the life of Lord French, the truth of the matter proved deeply embarrassing for the Crown forces. At the inquest into the deaths of the two men, it emerged that both Lawrence Kennedy and Lieutenant Boast had been killed by British Army personnel and that all bullets on the night had been fired by soldiers who appeared to have panicked when Lawrence Kennedy failed to identify himself. It was also revealed that Lawrence Kennedy probably didn't hear their calls because he was partially deaf and then in a shocking detail it emerged that after sustaining an initial bullet wound he had been, in the words of one soldier, finished off, effectively executed in what the coroner described as a heartless manner. For Lord French, while he may have felt lucky to survive the Ashtown ambush, these events over Christmas 1919 symbolised what was clearly a failed policy towards the war in Ireland. And while previous episodes have focused on the Republican movement, it's worth taking stock at this moment of who exactly Lord French was and where his policies in Ireland had gone so badly wrong. By the time of the Ashtown ambush, Lord John French had been in the post of Viceroy of Ireland over 18 months. His tenure had begun when he travelled from England on Saturday, May 11th, 1918, on board a steamer that had quietly slipped into a harbour just south of Dublin without any fanfare or publicity. Now, in times past, the arrival of a new Viceroy had been a time of major celebration and public parades in Dublin, but that would have been neither appropriate nor possible in 1918. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy 
And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. French had arrived in Ireland as part of a major shake-up in the British administration on the island. As Viceroy, he had been given far greater powers than his predecessors to enforce conscription. Now this was widely unpopular and French was preparing to essentially wage war on the population, even proposing that military planes might be used against those who resisted conscription. This never transpired because, as we've seen in earlier episodes, the government dropped plans to introduce conscription into Ireland. But over the following 18 months after this, French had failed to meet the challenges he faced as the War of Independence developed. Sinn Féin's electoral victory in December 1918, the ambush at Salahed Beg, the meeting of the First Doyle, Eamon de Valera's escape from Lincoln Jail, the Knock Long ambush, and the wider escalation of the conflict through the summer of that year left him facing the greatest threat to British rule in Ireland since the 1790s. While many of these events were far beyond his control, French proved far less dynamic than the leadership of the Republican movement. He revealed himself as a man of limited vision and talents. While the strategy he advocated was won by and large supported by his British cabinet colleagues, he was very unimaginative in its implementation. This was compounded by an unfounded belief that his Irish ancestry somehow gave him an understanding of Irish affairs. In reality, he had a very simplistic reading of the situation in Ireland. To make matters worse, he fell under the sway of sectarians and increasingly viewed Catholics, over 80% of the population, as inherently disloyal. Needless to say, hamstrung by these limitations, Lord French was not the man to lead the British administration through its gravest crisis in over a century. His unimaginative and simplistic analysis led to equally unimaginative and simplistic policies. Faced with rising support for the Republican movement, he failed to develop any deep understanding of his opponents. Rather than try and exploit divisions within the movement between the more radical militants who advocated for armed struggle, and those open to a negotiated settlement, he instead opted to crush all Republican-leaning organisations. French and his cabinet colleagues insisted the Republican movement were essentially criminals and treated them as such. Therefore, they applied authoritarian, militaristic solutions to what was essentially a political problem. The declaration of martial law in Limerick and Tipperary, in particular, had backfired pretty spectacularly. As we have seen, these measures only served to alienate large sections of the population from what they saw as an increasingly tyrannical regime. His widespread policy of repression and coercion also alienated the Catholic Church, who, with a different approach, 
might have been an effective ally given the church hierarchy were critics of the republican movement. Instead, by late 1919, the church's condemnation of IRA actions was increasingly accompanied by strong criticism of government policy, which they believed was the root cause of the increasing violence. When Warren Fisher, the head of the British Civil Service, arrived in Dublin in March 1920 to conduct an investigation into what he called the chaotic administration, he reported to Lloyd George. The government of Ireland strikes me as almost woodenly stupid, quite devoid of imagination. It listened solely to the ascendancy party and never seemed to think of the utility of keeping in close touch with opinions of all kinds. The phrase... Sinn Féin is a shibboleth with which everyone not a loyalist is denounced. While French would come in for increasing criticism and his influence over events in Ireland will decline in 1920, it would be a mistake, however, to see him as solely responsible. The major outlines of policy in Ireland were formulated by his cabinet colleagues in London and in late 1919 and early 1920, they made two major interventions both of which would leave lasting bitterness and legacies that continue to haunt Ireland up to the present day. After initially paying little attention to developments in Ireland, through the latter half of 1919, the British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, devoted increasing amounts of time to the island. This reflected the escalating war, but also the fact that the Versailles Treaty, which formally ended the First World War, had been signed with Germany that summer. Through the following months, Lloyd George began to devise a carrot-and-stick approach to Ireland. While the Republican movement would be tackled with ever-increasing repression, he also hoped to employ what was ultimately a pretty stale carrot to win wider support away from Republican politics. This was done through the introduction of Home Rule, a form of devolved government that Lloyd George hoped would undermine the demands for independence. However, from the get-go, this measure was doomed. Home rule, as covered back in episode one, had always been a divisive issue that had brought Ireland to the brink of civil war in 1914. With this in mind, in 1919, Lloyd George formulated a committee to come up with specific proposals as to how it could work, but from the outset, it was dominated by unionists. It was chaired by the entirely unsuitable First Lord of the Admiralty, Walter Long, who is an avowed supporter of unionism. The historian Richard Murphy in Assessing Long has written, Short of asking Edward Carson to draft a bill, an absurd prospect, there was no one else who would receive as much trust from the Ulstermen. The reference to Ulstermen refers to Ulster unionists, and the reference to Carson is to the leader of Irish unionism. When Walter Long published his committee's plans, it was immediately obvious they would do little to draw away support from republicanism. While it might seem a bit technical, the finer points of this proposal are super important, so bear with me for about a minute because you'll see why they are when we go through them. So officially called the Government of Ireland Act of 1920, this bill partitioned Ireland into two separate jurisdictions. Two Home Rule Parliaments were to be established, one in Dublin and the other in Belfast. If this sounds familiar, don't be surprised. It was actually this act that partitioned Ireland, not Irish independence. Now, partition was designed to alleviate unionist fears that their voice would be that of an ignored minority had there been just one parliament. A council of Ireland to work towards amalgamating the two parliaments at some point in the future was also established, although quickly became clear that this would go nowhere. 
During the negotiations on the specifics of the legislation, Ulster Unionists gutted the bill of any measures that could lead to amalgamation down the road. They successfully excluded the Ulster counties of Donegal, Cavan and Monaghan from the jurisdiction of the Belfast Parliament. This was to ensure that Unionists would always control this Parliament. The exclusion of Donegal, Cavan and Monaghan had threatened this as these three counties had large Catholic nationalist populations. Walter Long himself had admitted as much in a letter to Lloyd George in 1920 when he said, The inclusion of Donegal, Cavan and Monaghan would provide such an access of strength to the Roman Catholic Party that the supremacy of the Unionists would be seriously threatened. Unionists also demanded that proposals for a single judicial system across both jurisdictions was removed from the Act. It was clear that they were viewing this as a permanent state of affairs. By March 1920, after the government had given in to most Unionist demands, the Ulster Unionist Council gave the Home Rule Bill their approval. While this meant that the bill would pass through the House of Commons and Ireland would be partitioned into two jurisdictions, it guaranteed that nearly all nationalists, both radical and moderate, would reject its terms. While we look at attempts to implement the Government of Ireland Act later in the series, if the aim had been to pacify Ireland, it had almost no impact. Indeed, a second government decision taken around this time, if anything, only escalated the war. In December 1919, and then in the summer of 1920, they increasingly militarised the conflict by recruiting two new notorious forces. The Royal Irish Constabulary Special Reserve and the Auxiliaries, collectively referred to as the Black and Tans. As we have seen, by Christmas 1919, the Royal Irish Constabulary, which had been on the front line of the war, were an increasingly deflated and demoralised force. In total, 13 RIC constables had been killed in the previous 12 months, and while this might seem like a comparatively modest figure, the conflict was taking a heavy toll on the organisation as a whole. Dozens of constables had been wounded, and many more had been fired at. Those serving in smaller, isolated barracks lived on their nerves, fearing they would wake up in the middle of the night to find the building they were in surrounded by IRA volunteers. Fear was palpable. One RAC constable who resigned from the force talked about sleeping with a rifle beside his bed. By the end of 1919, smaller constabulary barracks were being evacuated as they were too vulnerable. It was no surprise that constables eligible to retire began to do so in increasing numbers as 1919 wore on. While the standard pension was two-thirds of their annual salary after 25 years' service, constables could take a lower pension after 20 years. Those who could began to avail of this early retirement, and younger members whose pensions were decades away chose to resign and find a new, safer career elsewhere. In total, the Royal Irish Constabulary lost over 10% of its membership in 1919 and replacing these men with new recruits from Ireland was proving increasingly difficult. Few wanted what was a thankless and dangerous job. However, despite the fact the RIC was hemorrhaging members and morale was at rock bottom, the British government was adamant that the organisation would remain on the front line in the War of Independence. Now, This move was rooted in their ideological attitude to the war. Official policy dismissed the Republican movement as what they called a criminal murder gang. This was designed to deny Sinn Féin and the IRA any legitimacy by labelling them as criminals rather than political opponents. 
In line with this, they held the view that problems in Ireland were essentially a law and order issue that should be dealt with by the police. In the words of the Prime Minister David Lloyd George, re-establishing control in Ireland was a policeman's job supported by the military, not vice versa. However, something would have to be done to make the RIC fit for service. As it happened, while the government was grappling with this problem, they also faced another separate issue, that of demobilisation of the army after World War I. As we saw last week, this was happening at an extremely rapid rate, with nearly 2 million men returning to civilian life in 1919 alone. While this was largely successful, there were still 167,000 former soldiers unemployed in Britain in 1920. The idea of using the latter, unemployed ex-servicemen, to resolve the growing problems facing the police in Ireland had first been tabled by Walter Long as early as May 1919. However, there were many who were dubious about using ex-soldiers as policemen. Joseph Byrne, the RAC Inspector General, for example, feared soldiers used to military discipline would be difficult to control. He was ignored and eventually, in late 1919, the decision to start recruiting RAC constables from the ranks of British Army veterans in Britain was agreed upon. Joseph Byrne, the Inspector General of the RAC, as it happens, was fired. The hardliners around Lord French and Walter Long distrusted him, in part because he was a Catholic and partly because he was opposed to militarising the police and favoured negotiations with Sinn Féin. The new recruits would live up to Burns' worst fears. Their formal title was the Royal Irish Constabulary Special Reserve, although on a day-to-day basis they performed the duties of ordinary constables. They would become known as the Black and Tans due to a mismatched uniform which mixed the black of police uniforms with military khaki. However, they quickly gained a reputation for violence and indiscipline. Initial recruitment, which began in 1920, had been sluggish, and it only gained pace after a substantial wage increase the following summer. Then, in what was a deeply concerning trend, it sharply increased in September 1920. The historian David Leeson has pointed out that this coincided with a widely publicised and notorious police sacking of the town of Balbriggan, which resulted in two deaths and the widespread destruction of businesses and houses. That the publicity around such an event saw recruitment increase rather than fall off indicated the type of individual answering the call to serve. Indeed, rather than halt recruitment due to these developments, the government were in fact expanding this policy. In the summer of 1920, they began recruiting a separate elite force of former army officers. The idea for this force had first been mooted by Winston Churchill. However, similarly to the initial suggestions about recruiting the Royal Irish Constabulary Special Reserve, senior figures in Ireland again cautioned hesitancy as they feared discipline could be an issue. These fears were ignored and in July 1920, the proposal was pushed through and recruitment of the force known as the Auxiliaries, or Auxies, began. They would prove as problematic as the Special Reserve. While the actions of these two new forces, collectively known as the Black and Tans, will become a central part of the story in coming episodes, their arrival took place at a crucial crossroads in the war. As we will see in the next episode, at Easter 1920, the IRA would launch their largest operation to date, while individual raids were beginning to take on the form of pitched battles rather than ambushes. Until then, Sloan.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 